It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I feel like speaking to today's guest is really timely for me right now in the present moment as of the time that we're recording, which full disclosure is well in advance of when this episode comes out. We're recording this at the end of August. And as I say, with most of our shows, so much can change from the time that we record to the time that our episodes come out. So we try to acknowledge the timing. And today on Thursday, August 26th, I have been feeling a bit, not burnt out, but a bit just, gosh, the words are a little hard. I want to say like drained. I really feel like I could use a break. And I know that Jason could too. And I use those words very mindfully because sometimes I feel burnt out, but I feel like it's important to really differentiate and be very like clear about how you're feeling. And I wouldn't really say that I'm burnt out because I feel like I can proceed. I don't feel like I need to take an extended break per se. But right now, I've, I guess I've burnt myself out for the day. You know, like there's a difference between being burnt out on an individual day versus like burnt out total. And when I was going through your work, Katrina, our, our wonderful guest, I was like resonating with this phrase career break. You know, it's like, what does it mean to take a break from your career? And my first question for you is like, do you specialize in like, first, I guess the definition is is clear because getting a break, like it could be like your big break. Like this is the, the thing that's going to set my career up for success versus I need to take a break from my career or I need to transition. And so I would love to know kind of the nuances of this phrase career break and what exactly you support your clients with in your work. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great, you know, distinction. So the way that, you know, I talk about it and I think it's becoming a more common phrase that many of us, given the current set of circumstances are, you know, coming into awareness of it's breaking from the current work situation that you have. So when I'm helping people, you know, I have helped people take sabbaticals, but it's not really oftentimes a sabbatical because in a sabbatical, technically, you know where you're going back to, right? Like your company is sort of holding your spot and it might be a a slightly different role, but you're basically going back to your old life after taking a break. But when I'm saying career break and when we're using career break, it is meaning like you actually are quitting your job. So some of my clients do return to the same career. Some of them have returned to the same company in a different role. But a lot of them are also taking a journey either into entrepreneurship or into sort of a a hybrid new career mixed with maybe like consulting, sort of using their past skills with like new desires to find a new career or a new path forward. And so, you know, really thinking about it, it takes a lot of courage to do either because I think 
culturally and like with our society, stopping at all can be seen as a negative thing or, you know, you're being lazy, you're going to fall behind, we have to be productive, we have to push through. But, you know, there's an extra level of courage involved in taking a career break because you are willingly leaping into the unknown and saying like, I will create something when I make this leap for my next chapter, but it won't be just returning to everything as it was. Yeah. I love how you articulated that. And Jason, I just want to call you out (laughs) because I know that you've been thinking of taking a break and I really support you in that. In fact, uh, for our listeners and for our guests, right now is also the beginning of a break for me as I'm about to travel. And we're recording it in advance so that we can take a bit of a break from this podcast, which we had typically been recording at least three times a week. And we're making time for ourselves, which I think is incredibly important. So I have all these plans to take a break. But Jason, since he's like staying put, I'm traveling. Jason's staying put in Los Angeles. I feel like sometimes it's hard to take a break if you don't actually change your environment. So Jason, I'm curious like how you're feeling and what about this is resonating with you thus far in terms of your own reflections of needing a break career-wise? Well, it's interesting that we have you here today, Katrina, because, well, for a lot of reasons, I reflect on the career breaks that I took previously in my life when I was younger. And I think about, I've changed careers, gosh, three times, I think at least in my life so far. So this subject interests me because I feel like this might be self-effacing, but it seems like every time that I changed careers, it was pretty messy. It was not necessarily like the, the most graceful transition. And now to Whitney, your point, I do feel like I am sort of at a level of mental burnout where I do need a break. But it's also with that, a different kind of fear than when I had, say, in my 20s or 30s. And I feel like it's a self-imposed limitation. I want your feedback on this specifically, Katrina, because in my 20s and 30s, when I made these career changes and I pivoted out of filmmaking and advertising and went into the culinary arts and pivoted into music and I all these things, there wasn't, I felt, a lot at stake, per se. I didn't have, you know, a 401k or a mortgage or animals to take care of, no children. In my 20s, making a career change was like, well, fuck it. There's nothing at stake. I can just drop everything and go to Costa Rica, which I did. I can drop everything and travel Europe for a summer. I mean, I literally, I think when I was 26, I saved up a reasonable chunk of money and I just, I just didn't work for like 10 months. I just took a break from life. Now, at 44, big rent payment, five animals, a lot of debt I'm paying off. It does not feel as easy or as graceful for me to say, fuck it, I'm just going to stop for 10 months. It feels terrifying, even though I think there's probably part of me that could use the rejuvenation of a 10-month break. So I don't know how to phrase this question quite succinctly, but... The fear and the trepidation I have, Katrina, is way different. It wasn't there in decades past. And now it terrifies me, the idea of taking a break like that. Yeah, so that that's very normal. So, you know, I myself am 41. I would say the average of my clients is between 35, 45, although I've had some older and some younger. And so, you know, there is more at stake in the way that 
we become very settled, right? Like you said, there there are people or things that need us. There potentially is debt, house payments, you know, large rents, leases, things like that. But what's really, really funny is that, you know, at the end of the day, the one thing that's really at stake, right, is our life, is, is feeling like we are having a life well lived. That is always at stake and that never changes. And I think what happens is when we get comfortable, our human brain really just like the scared, like lizardy part just calms down and like everything gets ve- like kind of like a lull, right? And it's like, we're happy, we're comfortable. It doesn't actually mean that everything is great, right? But it feels familiar. It feels steady. And, you know, like there's there's no like sort of outside force rustling things up and getting you all stirred up. Sort of, you know, like there might be some blips, but it's like we get more comfortable. And here's the thing, right? Our brains want to focus on what we risk when we decide to do something, what we think we're going to lose. So your brain is like looking at what is familiar and comfortable and saying, I might be giving up this, 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 and this. And that is half of the picture, right? Let's be honest. That is half of the picture. But you have to turn your head around and do like the full, you know, 360 degree turn to see what are you risking if you don't do it, right? Maybe... Yes, you need more of a plan. You need to be more intentional because there is more at risk at this stage. But that doesn't mean that there isn't like a lot at risk if you don't do it. And so make a decision, but make an informed decision that is looking holistically at what do I risk if I don't go versus, you know, just looking at what do I risk if I do go? Because that's the easy place for our brain to focus on is because I don't want to lose the the familiar, you know, like this is what I know. It's tangible. I see it. I have it right now. And if I change, I might lose it. I love that so much. And I think that's so important. Um, This is something, Jason, I feel like you and I talk about offline. And we've talked about this off and on on the show about like when that fear comes up, it's usually attached to like, I'm trying to think of some examples. Like this is bothering me, but I don't want to change it because I'm afraid if I change it, I'm going to lose out on something. Like that ongoing thing that many of us experience. And what I found so fascinating with my work is like when I'm tuning into my intuition, which is usually one of our, if not the best guide that we have, right? Like we can like try to block out the limiting beliefs and the noise from other people and what we've heard about how we should live our lives, especially when it comes to our professional lives. That, first of all, is really tough. And it's interesting to dig into this because it makes me think about like what is rooted in these fears of taking risks. And it's actually really interesting. Like I feel like I'm reflecting on it in a new way through this conversation where if I try to, you know, take it apart and like tap into the fears that I felt, and one of the biggest is the fear of missing out. And this is why a lot of people have struggled with setting boundaries or the fear of being rejected. Like if I set a boundary, if I go after what I really want, I won't get it or someone's going to turn me down. And sometimes the rejection is just somebody saying no and there's not a huge consequence. But depending on how you internalize things, just being told no can be very scarring. I mean, myself, I have to really raise my awareness when somebody gives me negative feedback, my knee-jerk reaction, right, is, is to feel like 
defeated and ashamed and like beat myself up. And I like feel it physically in my chest. It tightens up. And I feel like that's so unpleasant that I try to avoid that feeling a lot. I'm like, let me play it safe. So I don't have to feel that uncomfortable physical feeling. And that'll linger with me. I mean, there was something that happened career-wise that really wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things. It happened about a month and a half ago. And sometimes the memory of that experience will come up and I'll feel the exact same way I did at the time when I felt hurt by it. And I'll just be like, wow, I can't believe I'm still carrying that around. How long am I going to carry the burden of that? And how much has that shifted my brain into this fearful state of, I want to avoid that. I don't want to feel that way again. So like, how does that have a ripple effect on us? You know, and I'm curious, does that come up often? Do people articulate these things? Or you do you observe these things, Katrina? And I'm also curious, Jason, how this comes up for you. I can jump in to say, yes, absolutely. Right. This does come up. And I think one of the things that I talk a lot about with the people I help is, you know, I think of courage as a muscle. So it's something you have to practice, right? And so you talk about like this debilitating experience, right? That felt emotionally debilitating. And so you compensate for that in the future, right? Like you start trying to create more safety for yourself and the decisions and the ways you put yourself out there or that you don't. And so, you know, not that that's wrong. I think we have to honor the feelings that we have. We don't pretend we don't have them. But if we think about courage as a muscle, in certain ways, like you stop flexing that muscle because you want to avoid that situation. And so it becomes harder and harder and harder, right? And the good news though, is that it's always available to us to start flexing it, working it out again, and to get stronger in that, right? But I think so many of us on a bigger scale, Whitney, you know, if it's not the fear of rejection or this career, you know, experience that we had, it's it's other things where, you know, we've had some knee-jerk bad, bad experience and we tried to create safety forever and ever and ever, not really thinking about the fact that we're different people. What we want evolves, our skills evolve, our connections evolve, our awareness evolves. Like we are not that same person that was traumatized five years ago, 10 years ago, how we would handle it, how we would manage it, how we've maybe grown from it, right? But we sometimes make our world a little bit smaller in those in those ways because it's like, oh God, like that felt really bad. And so we don't practice being courageous. And I think you can start with little steps, right? But I think ultimately, right, with the people I help, like we talk about that. We talk about how can you take steps to build your courage muscle back up so that taking leaps doesn't feel so overwhelming or so paralyzing. I feel like this ties into one of the big questions that I wanted to dig in with you, Katrina, here, which is the subject of dreams and not physical dreams like sleep dreams, although we could get into that. I don't know how much you geek out on sleep. We actually had a great clubhouse earlier today about that. But when I talk about dreams, I mean visions for one's future or things that we in our heart want to create at some point in our lives, those kind of dreams. And I realized earlier this year that I don't really dream anymore. And I've really, it's almost painful to even say that out loud. And if I sit with it, and the reason that it it feels almost painful to say that is because I feel like I'm comfortable. I'm used to having dreams. I'm used to having something on my vision board or something that I'm doing a mantra in my daily meditations. And it hit me, I think, in the springtime of this year. It's like, God, I'm not dreaming. I'm not holding a vision for anything. 
And I think that it's maybe a compensation mechanism for all of the really challenging things over the past, you know, year and a half to two years. Like it's almost a fear of if I let myself dream and I let myself go for something, I'm really afraid that I think it's a fear of failure if I really distill it down. I'm curious if you have felt this in your life, if you've observed this in your clients, and if you have worked with someone who, I don't know if, if giving up on your dreams is necessarily the right context or someone who's just doesn't give themselves permission to dream anymore. What do you tell them and how do you work through someone like me? And this is not me asking for a free coaching session, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but but really, like if someone's just like, I don't have any dreams, I'm scared to dream, all my dreams are dead, they didn't come true, where do you go from there? Oh, this is so good. So I have two sort of two things I want to say about this. There's a difference and a nuance between someone who is always having dreams and always striving to achieve those dreams and someone who has been in a sort of extended lull where dreams have just gone to die and don't live anymore. And so I just want to distinguish that I think our culture makes us feel like we always have to be striving for a better version of ourselves to achieve more. Great, I'm here, but now I'm looking forward and I got to keep going because I got to keep like hustling and making that happen. Like I'm here to live my best life. And I believe we live in seasons, right? There are phases. And there is a time where all of your hard work you're allowed to be comfortable and enjoy it, right? If you're doing it in a, from a place that feels good and it's like you've achieved this, you're allowed to sit at that place and really just soak up all of the amazingness that you created and then organically create a new dream when you feel ready and restored to go for it again, right? But, so I want to say that, right? I don't know your exact situation, so I just want to let that sink in for anyone listening. You know, I don't want to put you back on the hamster wheel too early, but... I do, you know, for those who have been in a lull or where, like you were saying about the dreams sort of maybe being afraid to emerge because of a fear of failure, there is a really simple tool I use that I love to have all of my clients do. And I think it's really important for planning a break if you want to make this time valuable, but it is so fundamental to just having a good life. And it is very simple. You ask yourself one question three times. And it's the practice of answering that question, not the answer itself, that I think opens you up. So the question is, how could I make this even better? And the reason that this is important is because you start with an idea. And normally what we do in our society is we'll have an idea of like, oh, I should go on this hike or, oh, you know, I'll invite someone and we'll go do this like weekend in Florida or whatever. And then we start like narrowing in logistics, feasibility, how much is this going to cost? What dates can we do? Like we're so used to just driving home to the answer and the efficiency. And it's like, we just narrow our view. We don't practice the art and skill of sitting back and saying, oh, I have a thought and a dream. How can I make this even bigger, right? Opening our minds wider, bigger, expanding before we bring in the logistics and the feasibility. And so what this can look like, you know, on a small scale, actually, I have a client that's working on this right now, right? He's very like pragmatic from point A to point B. Like you said, not a lot of dreams, right? Not a lot of time, not a big dream, not like these big goals. It's just like what I got to do, get it done. I'm kind of staying in that. So he has to ask himself this for something on his wish list of things to do on a break. He has to ask himself this question three times for a thing. So if it's a hike, instead of just doing the hike and like being done with the hike, check the box. I did the hike. It's like, okay, great. The hike is great. How could you make it even better? Oh, I could do the hike that I actually really want to do, but I never had the time to do when I was working. That's like four hours away. And that's going to make it a whole day, but that would be kind of amazing. Great. How could you make that even better? 
I could invite my friend that I never, ever see. I mean, it's really crazy and weird, but like, I actually should make time for this person. I've been saying for six months that I miss them and I want to connect. Great. How could you make that even better? Oh my gosh. So on the way back, there's this restaurant I used to go to like 20 years ago and I haven't been because I never go out that way, but I could like make the time to go have this meal that I used to have like 20 years ago and just really like have this really nice moment with my friend. Great. Go do that. Right. And so if you don't have a big dream, I think the simple act of in day-to-day life, even if you're not planning a break, right. Of asking yourself, especially when you have something that feels frustrating, like, you know, my, my long drive to LA, when I went into Santa Monica to get my hair cut, it's like, how can I make this long, painful traffic drive even better? I have a gluten allergy. I will find a gluten-free bakery and I will go get myself a pastry. And I did. And it was amazing. Right. So it's you like, have to you know, tell us where though, because we're both gluten avoiders. Bread block. Have you been? Bread block is my jam. I want to marry whoever, whoever bakes that bread. I want to marry them. It was so good. As soon as you said it to, by the way, I was like, I bet it's breadlock. Their chestnut bread, this is a total aside, their chestnut bread is dangerously good. Is this the place on Montana? Oh, okay. Okay. You guys, I have traveled around the world. I have eaten at gluten-free bakeries literally across the globe, and I would put them in the very, very top tier. Like, it was impressive. So, right, that blew my trip, like... I mean, getting my haircut is fantastic, but the traffic stinks. But like having that to look forward to made it so much better. And then downloading a podcast that I really wanted to listen to, but I never have the time in my day-to-day life and listening to that while I'm driving down to the gluten-free bakery, right? So you take an experience and you practice expanding yourself and allowing more good things in. And I think if you feel stuck in having dreams on a small scale, just opening yourself up to possibility and thinking about making your life better is sort of like reconfiguring and moving that energy around to start to get, you know, the big dreams back. Although I'm sure, you know, you can do journaling and things like that as well to bring the dreams in. But I think that's a simple practice anyone can do that can start to like kickstart that motor back where you just start to expand instead of contract. I love this. I also need to know which podcast you listen to. Oh my gosh. It's make money as a life coach. So what I love about it is that she is a, she's big on thought work. And so her perspective does not always jive with me, but it is very unique and it really makes me think. And so what I love about her podcast, you know, when she talks about money, when she talks about people pleasing, when she talks about boundaries, like it's really, it's really a podcast about running your own business and literally getting over yourself to be the entrepreneur that you want to be. And so for me, every time I listen to it, I feel like I take away a nugget that just shifts how I see things. So I always feel really inspired by just like how my brain gets going when I listen to it. I love that. And it's so interesting because my brain went to two different places while you were sharing this. One is that my challenge is that I'm a bit of an overthinker and an overplanner. So it's very easy for me to ask the question, how can I make this better? But what's hard is reining myself in because I'll just constantly build upon, build upon. And then I almost get caught up in this cycle of never feeling like it's good enough. I mean, that's like an underlying thing for me in general, but it's like an opposite end of the standard spectrum, which is like, I don't feel good enough. So why should I try? I'm like, I don't feel good enough. So I should try harder. That's been an ongoing thing for me. And sometimes I get caught up in that and the weight of doing too much actually takes me in. It's like, you know, if you're playing a balancing act, you want to be more in the middle 
And some people, like, they don't try at all because they feel safer on that end of the spectrum. I'm the overachiever, overthinker. I try so hard that I get burnt out. And that's how I was describing earlier today. Like, my day has been full of that question, how can I make this better? So I'm curious, like, for someone like me, how do I make the question, how can I make it better, not overwhelming and leading me to burnout? So good. And so relatable. I 100% I have I have people just like you, Whitney, that I talk to every day. So number one is nuancing better, right? So better isn't necessarily bigger, bolder, badder, more impressive. Better can just be it feels better, right? Like it feels like if what I need right now is relaxation, it might be that this can be made better by taking a 10 minute power nap before I go do this thing, right? So it's really about honoring what better is to you and better is not like this growth stretch thing. It is really like, how can I give myself more of what I need? So for a lot of people, I think more joy, you know, sort of like more connection, those are things, right? But for some people, it's rest and restoration. It's more attention, right? It's tough love to have the, you know, have the salad that I really need because I haven't really had any vegetables all day. You know what I mean? Like what better means to you can be very nuanced. But, you know, I do work with a crap ton of overachievers. I mean, that's kind of why they hire me is because taking a break feels so counterintuitive and it's so counterculture. But then also I think there's a part of them that if they're going to take a break, they want to do it perfectly. So it's like, I'm going to hire someone to help me take the perfect break. Right. So, and that's okay. Cause secretly I'm just going to make their whole life better and like give them some coaching that they're not really ready for, but that's okay. The secret's out, but like, that's what happens. But one of the other tools, Whitney, that is definitely one I would give you is called white space. And it is making my overachieving clients. So they do it on a break, but they do it before creating an hour if they can in their calendar where they plan in advance and they are not allowed to make any plans at all for that hour. And the one thing they have to do is they have to show up at the beginning of that hour and ask themselves, what do I need right now? And the answer might be a hot tea. It might be a nap. It might be a run. It might be to call their mom. It might be to read a book. It might be to, you know, like they might feel so inspired to like write, you know, 10 pages of a book that they're trying to write. But the thing is, is that you have to give yourself time to be fully present to your life. So what you're talking about, right, like that's not good enough, some of that is a fear of, you know, I would imagine that there's probably some like some some stuff in the past too that, right, like that would come into that, I'm sure. But also it's like a fear of the future, like whatever I'm doing is not going to be enough. So I have to do more and I have to go harder. And guess what? You are not in the present moment where everything is actually freaking fine, right? In the present moment, things are fine. And so white space is about setting time to be present to your needs and to what you want in that moment. And it's a practice too, right? It's a very sort of unnatural practice for people that are used to stacking their calendar with all the things and trying to like be super efficient with their time. And like you said, you know, overachieving and overthinking and overdoing. And so, you know, the practice of being present can really alleviate when you, when you really practice it, it can help alleviate that striving, panicky, fearful future of what I'm doing is not going to be enough, or I'm going to have regret in the future. Like none of those fears are about what is actually happening right now. And the other thing I would tell you, Whitney, and I would highly recommend if you are up for it, I make some of my clients celebrate their wins daily. So whether it's on a note app on their phone, a virtual post-it on their laptop or a literal post-it paper, I make them jot down like super short, right? Like great podcast with Katrina, you know, like 
little, like little and big wins, but things that feel like I did that, that got done, that felt good. And then at the end of the day, you reread them, play a song that makes you feel celebratory to like really like give you the full experience and reflect and celebrate all the ways that you like won that day. Because that feeling of not good enough is like really sort of our brain, like your brain has a story that whatever you do, it's not enough. You got to keep going. And so it's dismissing and forgetting the second that it happens. It's like, yeah, you had that great podcast. Yeah, you got that thing done. Yeah, somebody said you did a freaking fantastic job. Yeah, that person was like, Whitney, you changed my life. But like, that's fine. That was like, that was like earlier today. We've got things to do. I've got things to do. Like, I can't focus on that. And your brain does not want to hold on to that, right? So you have to make it come back to that. Wow. I feel like a lot of people are going to resonate. I even see Jason nodding his head and he's very different than me in some of these ways. But that leads me to something that I don't think we've ever talked about on this show, Jason. Correct me if I'm wrong. And maybe we touched upon it very lightly, but let's let's put some focus on it. And it goes back into what you were saying about like my feelings of not enoughness are based in the past. Absolutely. And one thing I reflected on recently when I heard about it is career PTSD. Now, I don't know if that's an official term and we take terms like PTSD seriously. So to be mindful and respectful of, you know, other forms of PTSD. But I did think it was really an interesting concept because it does tie into this where when we have trauma from the past, it can cause so much stress in our body and fear and we start to react to new things or present things, as you're saying, as if they're the same thing as something really bad that happened in the past. Or before we even have a chance to experience something, we don't even feel like we can do it because of that trauma. And I think it's not discussed enough how our past career experiences have impacted our lives. And Jason, I I imagine this kind of ties in, like you're not in your head so much. And like what I was saying before about like any fear limiting beliefs, like I would be willing to guess that most of them do are some sort of trauma response. Would I be accurate in saying that Katrina? So I think, you know, I think a lot of times, yes, I think that, you know, for a lot of people, foundational beliefs can be formed, you know, in childhood, right? So if there was a parent that you were always trying to please, there's sort of a thread of not good enough or not enough that will manifest in different ways. Because, you know, when you have that experience as an adult, like take that rejection, right? Like, I don't know your specific rejection, but just any rejection, right? When that rejection happens, it's about that moment and how crappy it feels, but it's also about your brain going, I knew it. I told you way back when we're still not good enough. It's like, we're right back where we started there. They see something that we were trying to hide, which is that we're not good enough. And now people know, and they're going to, you know, so it's like a lot of, I think a lot of the foundation can be set like way before and it sort of lingers around, but then yes, absolutely. Right. Like we have experiences, negative experiences. Maybe we were neutral going into them, but how we absorb them and how we carry them with us, you know, it's a, it's a process to let them go. And so many people have many different ways, right. That they go about and go on their journey, you know, from Reiki therapy, like all kinds of things. Right. But just really trying to release some of that stuff that you've carried forward. But I really believe no matter what you do, awareness is that first step, right? Like knowing in the moment, where is this coming from? And this is not about now and creating some sense of safety within yourself, right? So it might be putting your hand over your heart and just being like, I am here right now, right? And I, you know, I am good enough in this moment. I'm doing everything all right. I'm fed. I have a home. Like I'm okay. I'm safe right here. 
everything is okay. It could be deep breathing, right? Like really taking slow breaths. For some people, it could be taking a bath, right? But it's doing whatever did you have to do to create safety to come back to the present and know that you're okay and you're safe in this moment. But I mean, many people go on different journeys. There are lots of things, right, that you could undertake to kind of heal some of that trauma. But for sure, I mean, I think we accumulate, you know, negative experiences over our life and how we process them determines if we let them go or if they stick around and sort of pile up on top of each other. I feel like this is just such a wonderful transition Katrina to get really personal with you for a second. And we love to with our guests here really dig into people's origin stories and and what has shaped you on a mental, emotional, spiritual level. And I know that you grew up in a biracial family in West Virginia and you had some really challenging experiences as a child with uh, how your mom's family reacted to that and and some of the things you went through. So as you're describing, you know, and I got this visual of of just, you know, holding ourselves, putting our hand on our heart, as you described, from those incredibly challenging and difficult childhood experiences and elaborate them as much or as little as you want to, how did that form your life as a person in terms of these somatic self-care experiences, becoming a life coach? If you could dig into your childhood a bit and let us know about this origin story. I think it'll color who you are now as a person and let people know where you came from and how you garnered some of these tools. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so I think the, you know, I've reflected on my life over, over these 40 plus years. And I do think that this was a foundational block of who I am, probably like one of three, right. Blocks of how I became who I am. And I think there was a really painful side and also a really beautiful side to my experience. And I, you know, that's what I hope for, for people to take away from that, right. Is that we aren't denying the pain of it, but also can we create something beautiful so that we create our own meaning and we feel like we did that, right. Like we get to feel in our power to move forward with that. But, you know, growing up, you know, I am half black, half white, and I grew up in a small West Virginia town. And so it wasn't only sort of like my mom's family, but also, you know, just the town we grew up in. It was very difficult growing up there in some regards. And my mom's family was very adamant that she not marry a black man, but she did it anyway. And so, you know, growing up, especially when I was younger, there were these two pivotal moments where I was really struck by how incredibly painful it can be when somebody has decided something about your whole entire person based off something as arbitrary and like completely irrelevant as not even the color of your skin. Because if you see me on video, I'm incredibly pale, right? It is just literally like my genetic makeup. It's it's the conceptual color of my skin. It's not even the actual color of my skin, right? And so, you know, growing up, the first moment was probably the most painful because it was the first moment. But I remember being really little, like six, seven, maybe eight. And my aunt was getting married, my mom's sister. And I was so excited. I had never really been to a wedding before. I had maybe been to one, but I'd never been in one. And what, like, you know, I wanted to put on a dress. I wanted to have flowers. I wanted to toss that stuff around. And so I remember like finding out details about it because my mom knew some of the details and she would tell my dad or something, you know, go, oh, yeah, they whatever. And so my two girl cousins, one older, one younger, were asked to be flower girls. And I remember thinking like, oh, my invitation is coming. This is going to be amazing. And then like, it didn't come. And I remember thinking like, okay, well, maybe she only needed two. And I know I'm not her favorite. So maybe I'm not a flower girl, but I'm so excited for this wedding. It sounds like it's going to be so cool. And I remember my mom was away. I think she'd actually gone up to see her mom and maybe some of this drama was unfolding there, but it was just me and my dad. And I asked my dad, like, dad, are we going to this wedding? Like, what's happening? And he was like, can you just sit down for a second? I need to talk to you. And I was like, okay. 
And he was like, so I need to tell you something. He was like, so your, your mom's family, they love half of you, but they don't love the other half of you. And I was like, I remember like this cold sinking feeling. It's like being in a horror movie or something where, you know, you went like you went outside and you weren't supposed to go outside. It's just like that terrible, like terrorist. Oh, it was, I just remember it like sinking. And I was like, oh my God, this sounds really bad. I had no idea what was, I mean, racism and race to me at this point were like really not a thing. I knew my parents didn't visually match. Like they weren't the same skin tone, but it really meant nothing to me. And I just remember like feeling like, what is he about to say? And he was like, they love the half of you. That's mommy but they kind of don't like the half of you that's daddy. And I was like, but why? And he was like, cause dad's black. And I just, I remember like wanting to cry so bad, but I was also like a very responsible kid. And I remember looking at my dad and thinking like, if I cry in front of him, he's going to feel bad. Cause then he's going to think that I feel bad that I'm black. So like, I can't cry in front of him. So I'll just play it real cool. I'll just like hang out here for a few minutes and like look normal. And then I'll just excuse myself and say, I got to go play upstairs and then I'll go cry. And so that's what I did. And I mean, my dad knew what I was doing, but I thought I was so wise. And so, you know, I had my few minutes to like, to like throw him off the scent. And then I like was like, I think I'm going to go upstairs and like take a nap or play with my dolls. And then I just like freaking cried, right? Like really cried. And I think there's a reality of like racism that sucks, but I'm going to say like, I think, you know, probably not all biracial kids have gone through what I have gone through, but I think the ones that have, it's like, there's another level of reality when you realize that people that are literally supposed to love you, like the way you were born, just inherently genetically you are tied, cannot love you and not want anything to do with you just based on something that you have no control over and that you didn't do. And that is so freaking irrelevant. And so for me, it was like this That was the moment where I think I went from realizing I was different to feeling like I don't belong. Because if you don't belong in your family, like if you have people that are like, you don't belong here and it's not for anything that you've done. I mean, it's just a really isolating feeling. I imagine that could be a similar story for, you know, like trans kids, you know, lesbians, you know, all the things, right? Like gay people, all the things. I imagine there are different versions of that, but it was just a really sort of isolated moment where I my brain wanted to explode at the realization that they didn't like me. Like you're my family. I'm seven. I haven't done shit to you. And you are so embarrassed by me that you won't invite me to this wedding. And then my grandfather passed away like a year or two after. And my mom was told that she could come, but that she could not bring the black people, which, you know, me, my brother and my father to the wedding because they didn't want anyone to know or to see us. And so, you know, that was a really painful thing. And I think The painful part, right, is I have amazing parents who love me a whole lot and always told me how amazing and special in a a positive way I was. So it wasn't like I had a lot of self-loathing. I didn't have any of that. But I did have this feeling of like, I don't really belong. And I think being biracial in West Virginia town, it was already like, it was already a budding experience and just waiting, right? But that just came in and smacked it full tilt. And so that was kind of like the story I had. And honestly, like I still work on that story. Like, you know, we talk about not good enough. My version of that is that I don't do well in groups. People don't like me. I don't like, I don't really, you know, like I just get very, I become a different version of myself in groups and I have to work on being open and being friendly and not just sort of shutting down in like large groups for that reason or, or sort of like belonging in that way. But the beautiful part I do want to say is that if people are going to not love you for something that is out of your control, I have felt very empowered to do whatever the fuck I wanted, right? I mean, I still have good girl rules, but like to do whatever the hell I wanted to do, because what am I really risking? I realize people are going to like you or not like you. And so if I learned this at a young age, 
I don't have to tap dance or perform, right? When we talk about being afraid because of what you, what you have already and what you risk losing, when you look at it and you're like, oh, but if I do this thing, I, I risk losing all of these things I already have. When somebody takes away that sense of belonging and that sense of whatever, and that was never on the table to begin with, it's much lower stakes to be me. And I think being able to be me and to do me and then having positive experiences come out of that or good things come out of that, I built proof, right? I practiced my courage muscle, I strengthened it, and I built evidence that things are okay when I'm myself. In fact, they're better when I'm myself. And so I definitely had like trying to be good girl, people pleaser. I was the good kid, right? That did all the things right. So I had to like shed some of that. But I think on some level, it set me free in a way that a lot of people weren't set free to stop trying to please everyone because people are just going to not like me because of how I was born. Like, what do I even, how do you even rectify that? Like you don't. Wow. I mean, it's a story that is really challenging to hear because my, I felt like I was tearing up specifically for your seven year old self. And just like, it makes me sad that a young child has to go through something like that. And then it's also so inspiring what came out of that for you. And then I had this fascinating realization to your point that I and maybe others have have experienced is this idea that I can control it. And so you realizing that you can't control it, like you said, is a gift. Because if you spend your whole life thinking you can control it, then your whole life is revolving around trying to control how other people feel about you. So it's like both sides are really tough. And I don't know if one is a better situation to be in than another, but I haven't ever thought about it that way. So thank you for framing it that it's like there's a blessing and a curse and and in the way that we relate to others and how we feel about how they feel about us. Yeah, you're so welcome. I mean, thank you guys for, you know, being interested in that and asking the question. And I think, like I said, I think in some ways there are different groups that can relate, you know, to a story like mine, but I really, I don't, you know, I don't mean to sound hokey at all, but I really do believe the only thing we're really in control of is how we show up for the life that we have. And it, you know, like to your point, what's better, what's worse, there really isn't one, right? Because life is going to give you challenges and things are going like, you know, if I was born to parents with a lot of money, maybe I would have some really painful crisis about I'm not worthy because I was given all this and I don't deserve it. And like, I know people that have a lot and can't enjoy having it because they didn't feel like they earned it versus me. I'm going to enjoy the shit out of it. I'm like, I earned this, I earned this, I earned this. Right. And so I think we all, you know, we we're humans, like we all have, different, you know, struggles that we go through, but it's like, what do you do with them? And, you know, I lost my brother. It's been eight years now. And I would never say, you know, there was a bright side to losing him. So I'm okay with it. That that's never, ever, ever going to be something I would say, but did I find something to take out of it? Did I make it mean something so that I could keep going and do something with that? Like, yes, I did. And so I think, you know, I think it's a choice and it's not an easy choice and it's not, we don't do it perfectly and we have our feelings and and things are hard and we cry and I've been depressed and I've had, you know, struggles, but ultimately I want to live the best life that I can live. And I think that just means showing up. And some days that looks like just being here and other days that means looking like doing some really badass shit, but like showing up. Right. And, and I think just taking what you've got and healing the wounds you can heal so that they don't hold you back forever and just continuing to show up. I feel like there's there's so many moments in life that it feels almost like to reference 
maybe I don't want to say our childhoods. I can't assume what either of you have read, but I used to read the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure series of books, right? And and it was so cool because there were so many points where it's like, okay, are we going to go into the cave where we've never been and there could be monsters and demons and dragons? Or are we going to walk back to Nana's cabin and have some tea and some chowder? He's like, oh, oh do I want to go fight a dragon or do I want to go to Nana's cabin and have some potato chowder? Uh, potato chowder you know and then you end up like dying on the way the character and it's like oh shit but i avoided the dragon cave and ended up getting uh, you know mauled by a pack of wolves on my way to chowder damn it <laughs> i feel like life is kind of like this in a way you know we, we have these crossroads these pivotal moments even the ones in childhood like you were describing it and we get to assign meaning to it i think some people katrina and myself included I have gotten stuck in moments of my life where maybe I I didn't have the tools or maybe, you know what, I don't even know if I want to blame it on tools. Maybe I didn't want to assign some sort of positive meaning. Maybe in some points in my life that I reflect on being stuck in victim consciousness and they did this to me, fuck them, this is why I'm depressed, this is why I'm suicidal, You know, sort of just pointing fingers, right? It's a really easy thing for human beings to do. Have you had moments like that in sort of these pivotal moments of life where you said, okay, I could either just say, fuck life, fuck the world, this all sucks. But you have clearly made choices to say, I'm going to find joy. I'm going to find meaning. I'm going to try and live my best life. That's really challenging at times, I feel, to do. What's that been like for you? And have you experienced those moments of fuck everything? And if so, how do you get on the other side to find joy again and look for the good things instead of being mired in the muck and getting torn to shreds, you know, by the wolves on your way to get chowder? A hundred percent. I'm a human. So yes, definitely can relate to that and have had that. Right. And I think I've had it multiple times. I mean, we can go all the way back to my undergrad and feeling like I chose the wrong school and my parents really wanted me to go to the best school I could. And so people pleaser, I chose that school. I hated it. I had a terrible experience. Everybody was like, all my friends had the best experience. They like had fun. They party. They had a good time. I was like this Ivy League school, busting my butt, like working really hard. It was all women's. Like I didn't, I felt like I became socially awkward. All of those things. Right. And so I for sure came out of that experience feeling like F everyone, like F the people that made me feel like I had to go here, like F, you know, the school, like F, F all the things. Cause I'm mad. And I feel like I lost four years of my life. And to say that as a 20 year old, is really intense. Like you still have a lot of life left, but at 21, it felt like I lost four good years and I was pissed about it, you know? And then, and then there's the really like dark, dark side of losing my brother. And, you know, I went down a grief spiral. He was my, my favorite freaking person. Like have a favorite person and then imagine at age 30, they're just gone forever, never coming back. It like fucking sucks, right? And it's not fair and it's so shitty. And I think for a while, you know, I really felt the shittiness of it. And I remember I would sometimes be on an airplane and I have like a fear of flying, but it's not debilitating. Clearly I travel a lot, but it would be like this discomfort of like, gosh, I hope we don't crash. Like I sort of have that every time I'm in the air. And I remember for like a year, when I would fly after he died, I would just have this very calm, like, if the plane crashed, I wouldn't be mad about it. You know what I mean? It wasn't like I wanted to kill myself, but I was also like, if the plane crashed, I would be all right with that because I would be gone and living feels really hard right now. And I was still having good moments in life. It wasn't like every moment sucked, but it was just this like 
this happened to me and I have no ability to change it. I have no ability to fix it. I can't do anything. And so I would say first things first, you're going to have your feelings about it. And the only way to get to the other side is through, right? So there's no like mental ninja short trick, like shortcuts that you can take to like get through grief or get through anger and just magically, you know, feel better. But here's the thing. It's my life. I'm the only one that has to live in this pain forever and ever and ever. So if I don't get to a point where I get sick of my shit and I decide to do something about it, no one else is going to step in and do it for me, right? And so it just becomes this point where every time, what is the better story? Like, I get sick of my shit. I have the shit. I have the thoughts. I have the anger. I feel like a victim. And then I just think, but this isn't what I want. I don't want to stay stuck here. This is not what I want. And the only person that can get me out of here is me. So I guess I better put on my freaking boots and start climbing, right? And I might do it with an attitude and I might do it with some sass and I might like do it with some resistance and annoyance, right? But ultimately, like, I don't want to be here forever. And I think that's the moment is when you're in it, you're really in it. But when you take a step back, and you just feel tired of being tired or tired of being angry or tired of being like so freaking sad all the time, what are you going to do about it? Because if the answer is nothing, then this is the welcome to the rest of your life, right? But if the answer is something like you just, you, you try to get help, you get a therapist, you get a coach, you go on a hike, you do a retreat, you quit your job, you know, you do whatever you have to do to switch up your environment or to get support. And you just, you just try, you just start climbing. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, something came to mind as you were sharing this idea about being on the airplane, because I too will kind of think about like, well, what if this happens? But <laughs> I'm generally not someone who's like, well, I'll be okay if it does. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I got to do whatever it takes to prevent that from happening. Right. So again, opposite spectrums, at least at this point. But it reminded me of, of a clip I saw from a podcast interview with Ariana Grande today. And I think it was a show, I don't know if it was a recent interview or not, but she was talking to, I think, a friend of hers who who uh, hosts the show. And he asked her, you know, would she want to go to space? And she's like, yeah, absolutely. Like, if she could sign up and go into space, that'd be great. And he's like, well, what if that meant that you would risk not coming back, like not being able to come back to Earth? Would you still do it? And she was like, yeah. She's like, I'm totally okay if that would happen. Like, And I remember reflecting on that, thinking, that's kind of interesting. And I thought, like, would I be okay if I got to go up to space, but like something went wrong and I wasn't able to return? Like, would I be okay with taking that risk of leaving everything I know behind? And I don't know. I mean, I have to think about that deeply. I'm curious if either one of you can relate to it. But it was especially interesting to me under the context of Ariana Grande, who's like one of the most popular musical artists of the modern day. She has had so much success in her life from being in TV shows to this huge music career, obviously making lots of money. She knows everybody like in a lot of people's minds, like she's made it. She's got her big break, as we talked about before, like she's well beyond that. And it reminds me of how when she said that, I felt energetically like she was also on some level expressing to the fact that she's okay. Like she's probably experienced a lot of grief and a lot of stress and hardship in her life, whatever relative that means to her, to the point where at a young age, she'd be fine with just leaving Earth and never coming back. 
she'd be fine with leaving it all behind and not having that music career and leaving her family. And she's, again, I don't know when this was recorded, but she's married now, you know, like she would leave it all behind and be fine with it. And it reminds me of how so many people think like, if I just have this big break, then I'm going to feel better. But we see time and time again that people that get the big breaks and have these great careers and make all this money still feel a sense of unhappiness in their life and unsatisfaction, um, maybe depression or like maybe even burnout, whatever word you want to use. And it's not about getting those material things. And I know, Katrina, one thing that you like to discuss is kind of the minimalism and not being attached to things and I'm curious how that's shown up in your life and your client's life and what lessons you've learned along the way about not being attached to outcomes, whether it's like a professional thing or like acquiring something because it's never really going to make you happier than you would be without it. Yeah, that's so good. So this is foundational to sort of what I believe. And so I hired a coach in 2011. So we talk about, you know, like I, I had said before, right? Like, being in victim mode and realizing that you've been in this stuck place for a while. And when you look around, you're like, I don't want to be here anymore. You're the only one that can get you out. And so that was my life in corporate, right? Like having two careers, an MBA to my name and still feeling like this incredible sense of emptiness. Like I was supposed to have this amazing life and I'm grinding away in this office for something I don't even enjoy doing. And I just, you know, I hate showing up. And so I hired a life coach at that moment. That was me getting unstuck because I didn't know how to do it myself. And that's me saying like, I can't stay here. And the very first thing we did was we talked about exactly what you talked about, Whitney, which is we think that the outcome or the result is going to give us the feelings, right? I want a partner because I want to feel loved and connected and safe and protected and engaged, right? But that is not actually what happens. Those are just circumstances, right? You, everyone that has a partner knows when you get the partner, if they're great, things can be great. But also sometimes you want to like smack them and, you know, like scream at them or not talk to them or you think they're an asshole. You have to compromise on something that really matters to you because like you have to figure this stuff out, right? Like it's not the thing that creates your entire blissful life. It's, it's no circumstance. It's not the job, the house, having kids, having a partner, right? It is what you cultivate from the inside out. And so the very first thing that I did with my coach was I got clear on my compass words, on the six words at that time that really defined how I wanted to feel. So all the things I'm chasing, all the things that we're chasing, we're not chasing them because of the actual thing. We're chasing them because of how we think we're going to feel when we have them, right? And so if we can shortcut that and just figure out how do I want to feel and then create opportunities in everyday life to feel more of those feelings, we create the happiness that we think we want, right? Or at least the contentment that we think we want. It's not really about the stuff. So that was like a really foundational thing for me, Whitney, that I, you know, had worked on with her. And so when you talk about, right, like not being attached, I can still get attached. I mean, I can, de that can definitely happen. But I think in that moment through that work together, it really shifted my perspective to know that I'm always in my power to create how I want to feel, even if the outcome doesn't doesn't manifest the way that I thought it should or that I wanted it to. And I still feel disappointed. But because I feel disappointed doesn't mean that I don't get to feel love, independent, free, excited, joyful, right? These are all at my disposal. And so I've learned how to like turn my own light on in a way which is like invaluable and will be forever. But, you know, for people that struggle with that, we get attached to a certain way we think things should look. And this is the really remarkable thing. We can also get attached to like 
how we get that thing. So as an example, right, I have a workshop that I am launching. And what I noticed is that I have a very specific idea of how it's going to look to fill it. So I just launched it, right? And so I'm like, nope, people should, there should be a lot of people that come in the beginning because they're really excited and they've been waiting for me to do something like this at a low cost. And then there'll be a bunch of people at the end that come because like it's the end and then like maybe no people in the middle. And it has been a slow freaking trickle. It's been like a little person and a little person and it's steady though. And I'm like, nope, this is failure. It doesn't look like how I looked in my mind. I mean, separate of the fact that the outcome might be 20 people, which is what I wanted, right? 20 people to show up at this live workshop. I might get the 20 people, but how I feel about it is the story in my brain being attached to not only the outcome, but how I think I should get there, right? What it should look like to be that person. We can get attached to literally anything. And so I think it's really important to like dial it back and really know how we want to feel and focus on that, right? And just really own that and and to like laugh at ourselves when we're like, wow, I'm really attached to this. Like maybe I just want to take a step back. And I will say selling all of your things twice and letting things go is definitely a great practice of letting go of attachment and just really like really feeling almost like essential, right? Like you've boiled it down to the essentials in your life and feeling really connected to yourself. It's kind of like purging. It's like a spring cleaning of your life. I feel like that definitely like amplified that, that feeling, but I can still get attached, but I definitely work on it. And when I see it, I'm like, Oh girl, you're doing it again. Here's what I want to know about all this, because before we started recording, Katrina, we dipped a little bit into your your nomadicism, your digital nomadicism, which I want to talk about, because one thing that Whitney and I have, I suppose, pontificated on for years, I've had obsessions with tiny house living and my own version of, I don't know if that would be under the label of nomadicism, maybe it's just more minimalism, but I still have dreams of you know, simplifying my life to a degree, because I have, I have noticed that generally speaking, you talked earlier about evidence, you're trying things, you're collecting evidence, and you're seeing how things play out in your life. The more that I simplify my life on a material level, the lighter I feel, I just feel I, I, my being feels lighter. So I would love to know what your original vision for being a nomad was, right? Because we're talking about, oh, it's got to be this way and it's going to happen like this. So what was your original vision, your motivation, your spark for doing this? How long have you been doing it? And has the reality matched the dream and the original vision you had when you started? Oh, that's so good. So I have to be honest and say it started by accident. (laughs) I was following a should, right? So I was like, oh no, I should start my business and I should pick a place to live and I should be responsible and I should try to build a community of local people and I should have a favorite coffee shop and I should, I should, I should, right? And so that was the attachment, right? It's like what it looked like to be an entrepreneur. I was like, oh no, I've got to settle down. I've got to, because I had taken a career break in 2013 that lasted almost two years and I traveled around the world. And so when I was leaving my corporate job in 2018, you know, four years, four, yeah, about four years later, I didn't feel like I needed to travel anymore. I was like, I did that. Like, I'm good. Now I need to be settled. But I did not want to be settled. And it was like a very painful realization where I kept trying. I was on this long road trip through the US and I kept going to different cities being like, are you my city? Are you my city? Boise, are you my city? New Orleans, are you my city? No, Austin, are you my city? I mean, it was just like, I was just like trying to find, it was crazy. And so I really struggled. And finally, I had to release the attachment to the idea that me being an entrepreneur was me looking like what I thought it should look like based on what other successful coaches had, right? Like they just, they weren't nomadic. So I was like, well, this just must be how it is. So I didn't even question it. 
it was not true for me. So it was a very painful process, honestly, to accept that I wanted to be nomadic because I felt untethered and I was like, why can't I create roots to feel tethered? But that was what was true for me. And so I started traveling and I came alive again. And as weird as it sounds, after 20 months of traveling nonstop during my break, you would think it would be out of my system, but I was living my best life all over again and really like embracing that. And so I would say, you know, if you told me at that time, Katrina, you're going to be a digital nomad for at least three years, I would have lost my shit and started crying and be like, that sounds lonely and awful and exhausting. But what is true is when I'm not attached to what I think I should do or how I think my life should look, this is the very best way for me to be living right now. Like it is the most amazing sense of freedom in that to your point, I don't have, I have like a tiny closet, like a it's not even a walk-in, like a tiny closet full of things at my mom's house in the spare bedroom. And so occasionally I'll go home and I'll switch it out and I'll see her and I'll like pack the warm clothes up and I'll pull out the summer clothes depending on where I'm going, you know? But like my car and that closet, that's all I've got. And the amount of mental energy we don't realize that we spend on having stuff, accumulating stuff, getting rid of stuff, cleaning stuff, taking care of stuff, buying more space to house more stuff. Like it really does lighten our lives when we don't have stuff, like when we don't have a massive amount of stuff. And I think in the US, we're great at collecting stuff. Like we're real champs at it, you know? So like just letting go of the stuff was so cathartic for me. And so, you know, what I would say is that for me, the attachment was more around what I thought entrepreneurship and just like being a responsible adult going into her forties was going to look like, like, who's doing this at my age, right? But um, I had to let go of that. And then I think if I had known what it was going to look like, that would have freaked me out. It would have freaked me all the way out because I move locations every you know few weeks, month, very slowly now during COVID. And I did stay parked for like eight months with my mom, like at the height of all of the, the pandemic. But you know, I try to travel safely, but I just, I move slowly, but that's just how it works. And I'm not even planning it. It's just kind of how it's evolving. And I have so much joy when I just allow what feels good to be versus trying to think about what I think it should look like. Yeah, it's really resonant. And my curiosity too comes with your personal philosophy around capitalism, because it feels like on a lot of conversations Whitney and I have had either here on the podcast, personal conversations in the social media, globosphere matrix thing, whatever it even is, this juggernaut of digital technology that the more we look at the roots of capitalism, our corporate structure, things that one may classify as extremely oppressive in some ways, you know, there, there are times where I will sit back, you know, at the end of the day and kind of sit on my couch and, and look around at, at stuff and what I'm doing and, and go like, how did we, it's, it's almost like that. What's the talking head song where he's like, this is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. How did I get here? I did a horrible job. Sorry, David Byrne. But the point is, I wonder how you feel being in this minimalist, nomadic lifestyle, trusting life, one foot in front of the other, not worrying about the outcome, but also being an entrepreneur and very clearly being a for-profit entrepreneur and making money and finding your way in the world. What's the intersection, I suppose, of being a minimalist and a nomad, having this sense of detachment with material things, titles, objects, success, but still operating in a system of capitalism that is pretty hardcore in certain ways? 
Yeah, it, it is pretty hardcore in certain ways. I would agree with that. You know, I'm a human. And so I think I carry two realities, right? At the same time, like, like many humans do where, you know, like <laughs> I could say what I think and then some of my actions might prove that, you know, like I'm carrying sort of like an opposing thought. But, you know, for me, I think this is my fundamental truth about this is the less that I need, the more freedom that I have. So it doesn't mean that I don't need anything, right? But if I know that that's a want, or a nice to have and not a need, I am completely in my person and I have so much freedom. I can make decisions about how much money I need to make, what job I take, where I live, what I do, what I don't do. I have the freedom to choose. I might still choose to buy the thing, right? Or have the thing or whatever, but it's a choice and it's a choice knowing that's not what I need. And so the more I can get really clear on the, what it is I need to be happy, I have the freedom to choose the other things. And so I think that in our life, we are completely numbed out with stuff. And I think honestly, like the whole way our like capitalism is structured is like, you just keep creating new stuff to like convince people they need to buy that stuff because they've already bought the old stuff. And so, you know, even in like food marketing, right. It's like, you know, we have a taco kit, but now we need tacos that stand up by themselves because it's a problem that you need to get the filling. And like, you have to like have your taco fall over while you put the filling in. And like, they'll tell you like, that's a need. Like we're, we're solving a need, like we're problem solving. And it's like, are you, I mean, is that really, is that like a problem? Like where people, I mean, people might think it is, but really it's just like, we're numbing out. Like, is this a real problem? You know what I mean? And so I just, you know, I kind of had to escape out of that because it was not aligned to my values, but I love to go to Whole Foods and I love to try things that I don't need, but I love to eat them and, you know, have the joy of different tastes and different flavors. And, you know, I do travel and I love to have experiences, but I also like to be in apartments that feel fresh and clean. And so I might not want a lot of things in them, but I really love a nice bed with a fluffy pillow and a robe, you know, so I can't pretend I don't like things, but I just feel like we are hyper consumers and we are trying to fill voids with more things. And I think companies are set up to be like, okay, we've given them all this stuff. Like what, you know, it's like, I forget what kitchen store it is, but like, there's a kitchen store that has like a million gadgets. And it's like, you can buy something just to squeeze lemons. And then there's something different for oranges. Cause oranges are like a little bit bigger. And it's like, at some point, really, is it really this hard? Like you have a knife, you know, use your hands, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, it's kind of like ongoing and never ending, I think in, in capitalism, at least. Oh, for sure. I, I actually saw a video the other day of a woman who very beautifully made this video saying like, I could get this gadget for a very specific thing, but my knife can do it. And she just showed how one knife did all of the things that all these other gadgets were trying to convince you of. And I remember watching it thinking, gosh, like it's so obvious, but I have a lot of those gadgets, you know, <laughs> like, and then I, I was looking at my kitchen drawer differently after watching that video thinking like, you know, it is true. And that's actually one thing I love about traveling. I'm getting ready for a big cross country trip. And I've just spent so much time thinking about what I really need. Because when you're in a small space for a long period of time, you you have to be very mindful about what you bring. And one thing I don't like is not only taking up too much space, but I also, <laughs> one of my other deep traumatic fears is of losing things. Like I cannot stand losing anything. It feels like waste. It deeply bothers me. Even something that I could easily replace, if I lose it, I'm like so upset about it. And so one thing that helps me move through that and kind of prevent that unpleasant experience is is really only bringing the things that I'm going to utilize. 
And it's interesting how every time I travel, no matter how hard I try, I end up bringing something with me that I never use. Like there's all these like what if things or like temporary conveniences. Like I'm going to bring this either just in case or I'm going to buy this thing because right now it solves a problem. And I think it's so spot on, Katrina, that if we like really step back and reflect on like maybe balancing it out and ask yourself like, okay, well, even if I know this isn't a need and I acknowledge that this is a want, like if thinking through what it will be like to have something unnecessary and how long to have it for. And I think especially from an environmental perspective, that's really helped me is I often stop and just think like, is this something, how is this affecting my finances? Could I spend my money better differently? And is this wasteful? Because if I don't end up using it, then it's got to go somewhere. You know, like if it's at the store, maybe if somebody doesn't buy it, then they won't produce more because of the supply and demand. But if it's at my home, they're just going to keep producing more because I indicated that I wanted it, you know? And I do think it's really interesting how so many people, including entrepreneurs, service providers, are just often thinking about like, what's something new, new, new because of the novelty. But over time, I've actually wanted to create less new things. You know, like I've done so many online courses over time and like there'll be this pressure in this coaching world of like, you got to create new courses all the time. And it's like, well, what if I instead focused on revamping what I've already made, refreshing it, making it more modern. And this is same true with like writing a book. Like, do you need to release another book or can you just add to the current book and do a new version of it? Or, you know, even as a podcaster, Jason and I, I think at a certain point, it's like, well, how many subject matters are we going to address here? And like, luckily, when it comes to mental health and well-being, there's, there's constantly something new to address. And that's, that's like the benefit, I think, of this path, but it's still something worth considering. It's like the information overload is another big thing. It's not just the physical clutter, it's the mental clutter and the digital clutter that we accumulate. And so definitely worth reflecting on that to everything that you just said. So thank you for addressing that. And gosh, speaking of information overload, clearly we could just talk and talk with you, but for respect of everybody's time, your time, our time, and our listeners' time, we want to be mindful of, of like giving them just enough that they need and hopefully encouraging them to come check you out, which we're going to link to all of your amazing work in our show notes at wellevator.com. We've got a full transcript. We've got the video version, the audio version. We've got links to everything that we've mentioned, including that podcast, Make Money as a Life Coach that you mentioned, which I'm going to check out. And I also found the clip for that Ariana Ariana Grande podcast interview that I referenced, which uh, I believe was done maybe in 2019. So for context, looked it up. Jason, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on that you feel like we need to address before we wrap today? Just one last thing. And on your wonderful website, Katrina, which again, we will link to your Instagram, your Facebook, your LinkedIn, and especially your website. If any of the listeners or viewers want to book a session with you, learn more about your services and dig more into your work as a career break and sabbatical coach at the very bottom of your homepage on your website, which is K-M-C-G-H-E-E, kmcgeecoaching.com. You have a quote that I've never seen before, and I'm, I'm a bit of a quote geek. 
I don't know why, but I traditionally kind of hear on the podcast just reel off random quotes. And it's a beautiful quote from Anna Quindlen. And it says, if your success is not on your own terms, if it looks good to the world, but does not feel good in your heart, it is not success at all. That cuts right to the bone. And I think it cuts right to the bone because I have felt a lot of that in my life. I know that our listeners can probably relate to chasing the brass ring, ticking off the to-do list of what we think we ought to be in life and getting there and realizing that we don't feel fulfilled, we don't feel joyful, we don't feel heartful. And so I know there's a lot of human beings in this world that can use your support, your services, your wisdom, your experience, Katrina. So thank you for gracing us with your your sagaciousness, your heart today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And we really appreciate you being here on the podcast with us. Thank you. You are so welcome. And I just want to thank you guys for creating such a warm and open space to come have these conversations and for asking, you know, such like deep and really meaningful, you know, questions. I feel like I got to share from my heart. So I appreciate the space that you guys create for that. And yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation. So thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.